Daniel chapter 6. We're working our way through the book of Daniel. And uh, as we get to chapter 6, there's a lot of changes that take place in chapter 6. And one of the biggest changes is that there's a change in the government. Uh, up until, you know, uh, the chapters 1 through chapter 5 dealt with the Babylonian government, the Babylonian Empire. And Daniel, as a young man, is, is one of the captives of Israel. He's brought into Babylon. And so the Babylonian Empire, uh, one, chapters 1 through 5. Uh, in chapter 2, you'll recall that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of this great big image. And it was, you know, the head was gold, the arms and the chest were silver, the, the, uh, the waist was uh, bronze. And, and then, you know, just going on down. And it represented the different empires, the different kingdoms down to today. And uh, so we have the Babylonian Empire uh, in chapters 1 through 5, and that was the head of gold in that, in that image that Nebuchadnezzar had that dream. Well, in chapter 6 now, the Medo-Persian Empire, which is represented in that same image as the arms and chests of silver, they are in control now. They have conquered Babylon, and, uh, and so they are in, so there's a change in government. And uh, there's also a change in how the government operates, because under the Babylonian Empire, they had one ruler, and his name, of course, was Nebuchadnezzar, um, and the focus of his government was complete control. I mean, you know, he basically, the Bible says, you know, if he wanted somebody to be killed, they would be killed. If he wanted to raise them up, they'd be raised up, put them down. You know, he had complete authority in his government. He had complete control. And, you know, sometimes when a person has complete control, they don't trust other people. They struggle with trusting people. And uh, when we got to chapter 3, you'll recall that Nebuchadnezzar had built this about a 90-foot-tall golden image of, him, uh, of a man, basically representing his kingdom that would supposedly never end. And he brought all the leaders and all the people that were under him to come to this place and to fall down and worship before this image. And really what it was, because he doesn't trust anybody, because he's in control, it was a test of their loyalty is what it really boiled down to. He wanted to make sure everybody was towing the line underneath him. Well, that was the Babylonian Empire. And now there's a change. Now there's the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Medo-Persian Empire was a much larger empire than the Babylonian Empire. And that government ran, ruled with, of course, there was, well, Darius in chapter, uh, we're going to talk about him in chapter 6. Um, but basically, the, the, the government was divided. There was a division of authority. There was, of course, Darius, who was the king, the top at this point. And uh, he appointed three governors. And those governors each had about 40 satraps, which are whatever they are, satraps. <laughs> you know what satraps are, um, some kind of leaders. And, and, but the focus wasn't complete control because it was divided. The focus in the Medo-Persian Empire was financial accountability, taxes, money. Money is always an issue, right? Um, well, and then we'll see here in verse 2 that there were governors over the satraps. And the reason why we're told in verse 2 was that the king would suffer no loss. So that was the focus. So it's a kind of a different form of government. And that's what Daniel finds himself in in chapter 6. So beginning with verse 1. It pleased Darius, or Darius, however you want to pronounce it, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. 
And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. Now, what was interesting is Daniel had complete, or not complete, Daniel was influential during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And we're not told, you know, what happened when Darius came in, you know, the Persians, they came in and they conquered Babylon. How did he come to the attention of Darius and how did he get appointed? The Bible doesn't tell us, but I just safely assume it was God that gave him favor with the Persian, uh, Medo-Persian Empire. And so Daniel here, we're told, has selected one among three governors. And so I'm assuming there were 40 satraps under each governor, and they reported to him. Well, verse 3, it says, Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the, covenor, excuse me, above the governors and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over excuse me the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm now i just got to point out something daniel in fact if you go through the bible i think it's ezekiel talks about the righteousness of daniel we've, as we've been reading you know there's it's like there's no fault in this guy he's he's uh, he's a righteous person of course there, he was a sinner still, right? There's only one man that never sinned, and that was Jesus Christ. But he was, and the Bible talks about him as being a righteous person. But I don't think he was appointed because he was some spiritual righteous person. I really don't. I think it's because the Holy Spirit in him was reflected in his secular responsibilities. Listen, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ this morning i got news for you. You have that same excellent spirit in you. That's the Holy Spirit. The Bible says if you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit at conversion. He's a sign and a seal of our salvation. But the reality is not everybody who is born again is yielded to the Holy Spirit in them or led by the Holy Spirit. Those are referred to as carnal Christians. But if you are spirit-filled, if you are spirit-led, it should reflect in all areas of your life, especially in the public setting or in the workplace or in the school, depending on whatever sphere of influence or wherever you're at. And so one of the qualities we see here in Daniel was that he had integrity. He had integrity. Uh, here's a definition for it. It's the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles, moral uprightness. That's what integrity is. Now, if you get to the New Testament, we're told that pastors are supposed to have integrity. 1 Timothy, verses 3 through 7, says, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. When he's talking about outside, it doesn't mean like out in the parking lot here. But he means out in the community, outside of the walls of the church. A pastor should have integrity. But not only pastors, believers themselves. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. Here's qualifications for all believers, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may not lack nothing. So we're all supposed to be have integrity in the public outside of the four walls of a church. 
Even you know in in the in the uh, New Testament church, they had an issue with a lot of widows, and so the church was supporting these widows in the church. But there was qualifications for supporting widows as well. It's in First Timothy uh, five. 9 through 10. It says, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. The number was a collection of people that they, that it was like these were a group of women that they would support financially or whatever, however they would support them. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number and not unless she has been the wife of one man well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. So nobody gets out of it. There's no, there's no like, well, you don't have to worry about it. We all have to have integrity. Now, I just want to share a little story. A couple years back, I was working for a different company. I, I, I do a tent-making job. I mean, I don't build tents, but I, uh, I work out besides pastoring the fellowship here. I have a part-time job. And a couple years back, my boss at that time, he made this comment to me. He goes, I love having pastors working for me. I went, really? He goes, yeah, they're trustworthy. And I'm like, well, you know, there's probably some pastors that maybe aren't trustworthy. But uh, he made that comment to me, and I'm like, mm, okay. Anyways, I found out there was like three other pastors, two or three other pastors that worked for this company. Well, after leaving that job for my current one that I work for now, the owner of that company called me up one day, and he said, hey, um, would you consider becoming my financial guy, my CFO? He didn't use those terms, but that's what he referred to. I'd be like his right-hand man. I'd be handling all the finances of his company. And I'm like, wow. I don't feel qualified at all. I'm very flattered, but uh, I don't have those qualifications. He goes, I don't care. I, I'd like you to do it. The job is yours if you want it. And I'm like, well, thanks, but I have this other job, and I didn't want to change it. So I, I, I politely said, thank you, but no thanks. Evidently, and I say this evidently, honestly, evidently, I distinguish myself in the workplace. And so now I've got a secret for you guys. I'm going to tell you the secret for distinguishing yourself in the workplace. Are you ready for it? I have no clue. <laughs> I really don't. I don't have no clue. And let me explain why. This is what my job was. I worked at night. I worked alone. I scrubbed toilets. I cleaned gunk in toilets. I mopped floors. I emptied trash. I dusted desks off. And I vacuumed. That's that's what I did by myself at night. So how did I distinguish myself? I have a clue. I said I have no clue, but I have a, there's a couple things I can think of. I recall one time in one of these accounts, I, I, this cart that I had, it, it, I had all these chemicals. Well, this one thing fell over and spilled on the carpet. It made a great big stain in this hallway. Nobody's around, right? It's like, oh, I can just walk away. They'll think somebody spilled coffee. I'm like, no, I can't do that. So I... I after each uh, night, we were supposed to contact by email our, our boss and let, us, let him know if there was any status or anything going on. So I said, hey, I, I spilled this stuff on the floor. It's right there in the middle of the floor, and it's a pretty good-sized stain. He's like, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. And they did. There was another time I was cleaning a bank, and I found in this trash can, I heard this noise. I, I pull, there was a handful of Canadian money. Now I was born in Canada. And so I'm like, oh, cool. You know, this is awesome. Um, I'm like, no. So I put it on the desk, 
and I left a little note, hey, I found this in the trash can, and then I let my boss know, hey, you know, I just want to let you know that I found some, or some coins and I left it on a desk and stuff. Another time, now, this is kind of, I kind of chuckle about it now, but I was, we were working at the church, and this was a few years ago, and I was working in the evening. I mean, I actually worked all day, and I looked, I was grimy, head to toe, and I still had to go clean at night, because it was a nighttime job. And I was like, you know what? We were supposed to wear these shirts with the company name, and I'm like, ah, man, it's going to take too much time to go home and change. I just, I'll just go. To, there's nobody there. I'm there by myself. So I just, just this one time. So I get there and I start cleaning in this big building and I get to this one office and there's somebody there. It's a, a young lady. And I said, oh, I said, I'm sorry. I said, I, 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 I'm sure I look like a homeless guy. I mean, seriously, because I look like a bum. I really did. I know I did. And so I, I wanted to say something. I'm like, you know, I'm, a, I'm sorry that I look the way I do, but I just came back. I just came from cleaning my, or working on my church. And I just came here. She goes, oh, what church? And I said, Autumn Ridge. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I, I, said, I said, you know, uh, Calvary Chapel and stuff. And she's like, oh, and so I was talking a little bit about her. Well, anyways, didn't think much about it. Um, and so then about two weeks later, I'm in cleaning. I'm all by myself. This time, of course, I have my shirt on, my, my company shirt. Um, and there she is again. And she says, you're a pastor, right? I go, yeah. She goes, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She goes, how can you tell God's will for your life? <laughs> I'm like, well, and what it was, was she was in the, she was in the process, uh, she had gotten a job offer from another company, and she was really kind of weighing whether to take this job or not. I had no idea if she was a Christian or not. So I said, well, and I kind of explained to her my process for making decisions, but I said, you know, there's a God's general will. He's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. God's will is for you to have a relationship with him, a personal relationship with him. So I got to share Christ with her, and I ended up talking for about 30 minutes. So at the end of my night, we're supposed to let the boss know if there was anything going on. I said, you know what? You might want to dock me for about a half hour of pay. I said, I spent about a half hour talking with this person. Anyways, the next morning, I wake up, check my email, and the guy said, you know what? We're not going to dock your pay, and you can do that anytime you want. And I'm like, wow, you know? I think it's because they like to have some good rapport with the people that they work with, um, that they have accounts with. Why am I saying this? This is it. It's not about me. Believers should be the most trustworthy, hardest working, faithful employees a company has. Even janitors cleaning toilets at night. It doesn't matter what your job is. You and I, we're to have integrity in the workplace. Daniel had integrity. While the governors and the satraps, obviously they had something less than Daniel's integrity. So Daniel distinguished himself above the other governors and the satraps to the point where the king was thinking, you know what, I'm going to put Daniel over all these guys and promote Daniel. And somehow these other governors and satraps got wind of it and they hated Daniel's integrity. Why? Because they felt threatened by it. They felt threatened by it. Why? Because it exposed their lack of integrity. You know, and the Bible talks about the first case of someone feeling threatened by another's integrity. It's way back in the book of Genesis. It's in Genesis chapter 4, 
verses 4 through 5, or actually 4 through 7. It's the story of Cain and Abel. It says, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now, we, we could go into a whole other Bible study talking about that. But then it says in verse 6, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. After the Lord said this to Cain, Cain met his brother out in the field and killed him. He murdered him. And we're told by John in 1 John 3.12, why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. That's why. He hated his integrity. John also said this, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. See, if you have integrity in the workplace, your boss, unless they're corrupt, because that happens, if your boss is corrupt, they're not going to like your integrity. But if your boss is, a, a, is an upstanding, you know, decent person, they're going to like your integrity. But chances are, if you have coworkers that are a little less scrupulous, that have, they're not quite, you know, they're lacking in integrity, they probably won't like your integrity. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 29. He says, An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, and he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. So these, these guys, they felt threatened by Daniel. And so verse 4, it says, So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, concerning his responsibilities in the secular world. And what did they do? They formed a conspiracy. Now, probably there was one or two individuals that maybe felt threatened. Maybe they weren't all, you know, bad guys, but some of them must have felt threatened. And then they started murmuring and gossiping among one another, you know, getting together. Did you hear what's happening and stuff? And pretty soon, they've got a group, a conspiracy. And eventually, they start plotting, how can we stop Daniel? How can we stop this? And so they sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. They became observers and investigators I like what this one commentator said. He says, We have all need to walk circumspectly because we have many eyes upon us and some that watch for our halting. There are people that are watching you and some are watching to see, man, I hope I'm going to see if they fail. People that are watching us. And so they're thinking somewhere along the line, Daniel must have cheated on an expense account. I mean, he must have. I mean, after all, doesn't everybody? He must have taken a bribe at some point. Maybe he made a racist post on Facebook. We better investigate that. Or he wore blackface at a party, you know? They're, they're digging in. They're trying to investigate into his past. Maybe he called in sick, but he really wasn't sick one day. They found him out on, you know, the Euphrates River surfing or something like that, you know? Fishing or something, but he was called in sick. Maybe he sexually harassed a female assistant. They were trying to find out anything that they could pin on Daniel. I think it's... A good thing Hillary wasn't running against Daniel because there probably would have been a Russian dossier. You know, we found this, you know, discovered this thing. 
Um, anyways, they tried to find something wrong with Daniel. Verse 4, the second half, but they could not find char no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any fault, or excuse me, no, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Not only did Daniel have integrity, but Daniel had character. Character, here's a definition. It's the aggregate of features and traits that form the individual nature of some person. And if you don't know what aggregate, then don't feel bad if you don't, because it's a big word. Aggregate means a sum or a mass or an assemblage of particulars, a total or a gross amount. Let me give it to you in other words. In other words, they checked his private life. They checked his public life. They checked his past life. And they checked his present life. They were looking everywhere for something to pin on Daniel. And they found nada, nothing, zilch, nothing. There were no skeletons in Daniel's closet. There were nothing that they could point to in his business dealings or how he governed. They couldn't find anything wrong in his public life or his private life. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone gave me that level of scrutiny, <laughs> I'll be honest with you, they'd find some stuff in my past. They would. I wouldn't be able to stand that level of rigorous scrutiny. I don't think too many people would. You know, I mean, nowadays, of course, when I was a teen, I wasn't into Facebook. We didn't have any, you know, social media back then. But, you know, social media, man, they go back. You made this comment, you, 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 you like this thing or whatever, and all of a sudden you're identified with whatever it is. Social media alone, someone could, you know, find something questionable. Hopefully, none of us are harboring any hidden sins, like addictions, you know, drugs, alcohol, pornography. There's all kinds of addictions. If you are this morning... I would just encourage you to bring it out into the light and confess it to the Lord, repent of it. And repenting means basically turning away and then seek help. You know, if, if you need help, don't let, don't let it fester in the dark. Don't let it fester in the dark. And for you believers here, if someone comes up to you, and, you know, they, they're hearing this and they come up and they go, you know, I, I just got to share with you this thing. Don't do like this. <gasps> I can't believe it. You know, I, I, I learned... Uh, first aid when I was in the military. And one of the things they tell you is, you know, if, if someone's, you know, got a major injury, don't, don't like gasp, don't like, oh, you know, don't freak out because you're just going to make matters worse. And if some believer, they're struggling with something and they, they need help and they come to you and say, you know, brother or sister, depending on who it is, man, I, I got this in my life. Don't panic. <laughs> don't panic. Don't freak out, you know. Um, just don't respond in total, total shark. Shock, excuse me. I think if someone dug hard enough in any one of our past, they'd probably come up with something to pin or to blame us with. I want to read this to you. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But, verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 
So I'm saying, man, deal with your sin. But if someone comes up to you trying to pin something on you for something that you did in the past, you know what you do say? You know what? You're absolutely right. I was that person. But praise God, I've been washed, I've been sanctified, and I've been justified by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Well, they couldn't find anything against Daniel. Verse 5, Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. We've got to find something. So they, they, they hatch a plot to entrap Daniel. Verse 6, So the, these governors and satraps thronged before the king and, thus, and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore... King Darius signed the written decree. These guys, these governors and these satraps were manipulative. They manipulated Darius. Chuck Smith in his book, Biblical Counseling, describes manipulation this way. Manipulation is trying to get your own way or control a situation to best serve you unfairly or unscrupulously, deceitfully. It's all about self-interest, self-concern, and self-seeking. Think about it. There's about 123 people, if all the governors and satraps, there was 120 satraps and three governors, so 122 because Daniel wasn't there. They all throng the king. So there's this great crowd of men saying, hey, we've all got together and we've come up with this. You need to implement this rule. And, you know, he probably, maybe he's looking, ah, Daniel must be in there too. You know, I'm assuming everybody, you know. And the guy was manipulated into making this decree. And maybe it appealed to his pride, I don't know. But he ended up assigning this law. And the sole purpose of this decree had nothing to do with Darius had nothing to do with work. They just wanted to ensnare Daniel. They were out to get him. And they figured this is the one way, this is the only way we're going to be able to get him to ensnare Daniel and to ultimately do away with Daniel. Because of the punishment, man, whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Capital offense. Listen, I just want to talk about manipulation for a moment. If you're not being open and honest, but you're deceitfully saying things to people to try to get them to do what you want, that's classic manipulation. As believers, we're not to be manipulators. Manipulation is selfish. So if you're a manipulator this morning, what do you do? The same thing you do with any other sin. You confess it, you repent, you turn away from it. You know, seek help if you need help. Paul wrote this in Philippians 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. I think that talks about manipulation. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. And David in Psalm 34, 13 said this, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Verse 
Well, anyways, back to our story, verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Daniel had faithfulness. He was consistently faithful to pray three times a day. If your watch was off, you could set it by Daniel. Oh, it's three o'clock there, you know, or it's, it's dinner time or break. There's Daniel praying again. You could set your watch. He was that faithful. And it says that it, as it was his custom since his early days. When we get to chapter six here, Daniel is probably at least 80 years old, possibly anywhere up between 80 and 90 years old. He's an old dude by this time. He's probably spent about 65 years since he was a youngster or a young teenager carried off into Babylon praying three times a day, faithfully praying. Why would he pray with his windows open toward Jerusalem? Well, the reason why, I think, is what Solomon prayed when he was dedicating the temple. It's recorded in 1 Kings 8, 33 and 34. It says, when, and this is Solomon praying to the Lord. He says, when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back into the land which you gave to their fathers. That's exactly why Daniel and the, the, the children of Israel were in Babylon, now under the medial Persian Empire. But that's the whole reason why they were in captivity, because they had sinned against the Lord God. And God had sent for hundreds of years, prophet after prophet after prophet, telling them, you know, repent of your sin, turn back, the Lord will forgive you. And they just blew off these prophets. And so eventually, they went into captivity. And Daniel knew why they were captives in Babylon. He was just being obedient to the word of God, to what he knew, what, what Solomon had prayed. And so he's on his knees praying toward Jerusalem. You know, this basically was an outward expression of what was in Daniel's heart. He was, it was humiliation. It was repentance. And it's interesting because we read how Daniel was a righteous guy. They couldn't find any fault in him, but he was praying, and we'll get to that when we get to Daniel chapter 9. He's praying as if he's the one that committed all the sin, and that's why they're in Babylon. He was taking that upon himself. He's praying for the nation of Israel as, you know, in, he's personally doing it and turning towards God. And he was doing it three times a day, like I said, for probably at least 65 years. So this edict comes out. You can't pray, you can't petition the Lord, anyone but Darius, for 30 days. So you know what he could have done? He could have just, you know, all right, I'll take a, I'll take a month off. God understands, you know, it's not a big deal. You know, it's not like I'm denying my faith. I'll just stop for 30 days. Or, because he was doing it out in the open, I could just go into my prayer closet, you know. I can just pray quietly. I'll just think my prayers or whatever. You know, nobody has to know I'm praying and stuff. He could have done those things. It wouldn't have been sin. But listen, Daniel had developed a habit of prayer that had sustained him over all those years of ministry, over all those changes, over being a captive, and he's not about to change that. 
He had developed that into his heart. I want to encourage you this morning. Man, I, 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 I plead with you. Develop the habit of daily Bible reading and praying. Uh, you know, don't put it off. You know, I, I, just develop that in your life. If, I, if anything, I could encourage you out of this old morning that's do that, please. Because it truly is our daily bread. It will spiritually sustain you no matter what changes take place in your life. Look what's going on. Man, there's so many changes going on in our culture, in our government. We're kind of like Daniel in the middle. There's a the new government. There's, you know, there's new, new, new people in town now, new sheriff in town. Things are changing. Man, we need that. We need that time with the Lord to sustain us. And you might be thinking, you know what, I, I'd love to, but man, I'm, I'm really busy. I mean, I've mean, I got a full-time job. I do this and that. Man, I don't have time for that. I want to tell you this. Daniel's faithfulness did not waver over time. He did it consistently, 65 years minimum. And his faithfulness was not dependent on what was going on in his life. Think about it. In chapter 1, he's promoted. He's, got a, he's, he's promoted. Man, things are going well. He's tr being treated really well in Babylon. In chapter 2, man, he's even promoted even further. Now he's kind of in charge of all the magicians and Cal of the Chaldeans there. And then between chapter 4 and 5, at some point in his life, he's sidelined for many, many years. Now, that could be kind of a low point. You know, nobody, nobody consults with you anymore. You're, you're, not, you're, just, you're just kind of set aside. And then here in chapter 6, he's demoted, and he's even treated as a criminal. Now, later on, he'll get promoted again. He was very busy at times. Can you imagine being in charge of all this stuff? He was a busy person. Those times when he was set aside, he probably felt discouraged. And when he was being used, probably exhilarated. You guys know what that's like. We all experience that in our lives. But listen, his faithfulness was not dependent on what was going on in his life. It didn't matter. And his faithfulness was not dependent on any change in government. Oh, we're going through a change right now, right? <laughs> the other thing is, it didn't matter if Daniel was the only person ensnared by this decree. It was really, it was tailored for just for him. Nobody else, just for him. You might be thinking, wait a minute. Where was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Where were they? They're not listed here. Well, if Daniel was in his 80s or 90s, this is just an assumption because Scripture doesn't tell us, <clears throat> excuse me, Scripture doesn't say anything. Quite possibly, they have already, maybe they already died by this point. They may be not even been on the scene anymore. Evidently, Daniel was in the minority. I mean, literally, I mean, ultra. The only one, the only one. And a minority of one person, and yet he remained faithful to the Lord, even though he was the only one. Verse 11, these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. <clears throat> they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. 
So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. It says that these men assembled. It's an Aramaic verb meaning to assemble in a throng, to be turbulent, to be in a tumult. It's like a riot of people coming there, and they're like, wait a minute, Daniel is not following that law. They finally got what they wanted, something to accuse Daniel of. Verse 14, And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on uh, Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. That's Darius's or Darius's response. How different is that from Nebuchadnezzar's response to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they disobeyed the law? He was enraged and he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than it normally was. But Darius, first of all, he's angry at himself. Not angry at Daniel. He's angry at himself for allowing himself to be manipulated. Man, I can totally identify with that. I'd rather have someone come up to me and treat me bad, say something, something mean to me or do something mean or something. You know, I can deal with that. You know, I, I might struggle a little bit, but I can deal with that a lot better than when I've been manipulated. And after you've been manipulated and you go, oh, man, why did I fall for that? You ever felt that way? I Maybe I'm the only one that gets, I'm gullible, I guess. Maybe I'm the only one, but I can totally identify with that. Well, Darius was angry at himself. And so he spent all day trying to find a way to vacate that sentence against Daniel. Maybe he's trying to find if there's another law or another rule that maybe counteracts that one or, you know, there's got to be precedent somewhere. But he couldn't find anything. Verse 15, Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. I think they, they probably knew that Darius had a soft spot towards Daniel. They shrewdly covered their bases. I think they anticipated his response. Verse 16, So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he'll deliver you. How different is that from Shadrach, oh, excuse me, from Nebuchadnezzar's response to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, he said, hey, what God's going to deliver you from my hand? What a difference. Verse 17, Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now, verse 18, the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also, his sleep went from him. Did that jump out at you? Here's the king. The king, he's fasting for Daniel. He's, he can't sleep that night. He's upset. And I have to wonder, was Daniel that upset? I have a feeling I have a feeling he's probably snuggled up to a warm, cozy, nice, soft lion. I'm serious. I, I just picture that in my mind. He's just, he's just laying 
next to a lion sleeping like a baby until he's rudely awoken by some king in the morning, you know, calling out his name. Verse 19. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Verse 21. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Why do I think that Daniel slept like a baby? This is why. Because as a youth, when Daniel was carried off into Babylon, him and his companions, God had delivered them from uh, having to defile themselves with eating the food of the Babylonians. God had delivered him. God had spared him from that. You can read that in chapter 1. Later on in chapter 2, God delivered him from being killed with all the rest of the magicians and Chaldeans of Babylon. God had spared him. Later on in chapter 3, he had undoubtedly heard how God delivered miraculously Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. And then now, many decades, or I should say now, but many decades later, God delivered him during the overthrow of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians. And God had a track record of delivering Daniel. Why would God fail to deliver him now? God had been faithful up till then. Why wouldn't he do it now? But here's the thing. Even if God didn't deliver Daniel, Daniel wasn't about to turn his back on the Lord. The Lord had proved faithful to him. You know, we could say, look at that. You just have to trust the Lord. He's going to deliver you. Read Hebrews chapter 11 if you get a chance today. Look, at, look up Hebrews 11. It talks about how the mouths of lions were shut for some believers. But for other believers, they were sawn in two. They were, they were martyred. They were killed for their faith. You're never going to get to that depth of trust in the Lord without spending time in his word, without spending time in his presence. Daniel's practice of prayer developed his sense of God's presence in his life. And it gave Daniel focus. He was in the midst of some turbulent changes, but he was focused on God and his faithfulness. It also removed his fear he, didn't, he wasn't worried, you know, whatever persecution, and he's being persecuted. Seriously. It removed his fear. He just, I'm going to continue praying. I'm not going to stop. It also increased his faith to trust God for the outcome, no matter what the outcome was. You're never going to get to that level of trust and that level of, of confidence without spending time in the Lord's presence, without reading your word, without praying, without spending that time with the Lord, you'll never get to that point. I think about the disciples in Acts 4.13. They're brought before the Sanhedrin. Jesus had already rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and now they're under arrest. And it says in Acts 4.13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. 
There's something different about these guys. They're not even afraid of us because they've been with Jesus. Daniel had developed a habit of prayer that sustained him over the many years of ministry and being a captain. He learned the value of developing a devotional habit in his life. Listen, he didn't do it to be religious. I just want to be really religious, really a spiritual guy, so I'm going to pray, do this three times a day. He also didn't do it out of obligation. For him, it was the lifeblood that sustained him throughout his life. In the midst of any kind of change, any kind of turbulent stuff going on, any kind of persecution, that's what kept him going, was spending that time with the Lord. I think about in the Old Testament, Moses leading the children of Israel. They're out in the wilderness, and they have the tabernacle, and it's outside of the camp, and, and Moses is going to the, to the tabernacle with his young assistant Joshua. And Moses is spending time in the presence of the Lord. But in Exodus 33, 11, it says, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp. Because Moses was, you know, leading the people. So he would go back into the camp. But listen to this. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. He's like, I don't want to leave. When you get to that point where you spend that time with the Lord and you just realize, man, I... I, I, I I'm missing it. I gotta be. I, I, it's not an obligation. It's not a religious thing. It's like I want that time with the Lord. Man, that's that's where we're, that's where we all need to be in our lives. Well, what happened? Let's finish the story. Verse 23. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury was found on him because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast him into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Now, I think that verse was just there for the skeptic. Like thinking, you know, there must be some kind of natural exploit. Maybe they, maybe they just weren't hungry, or they were sick, or maybe they didn't realize Daniel was in there. No, it's, I think that answers the, skepticals, the skeptic's question. What actually happened? Well, it's what Proverbs 11.8 says. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and it comes to the wicked instead. Verse 25. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? Just like Nebuchadnezzar, I think we're going to see Darius in heaven. I really do. It's another guy we'll meet in heaven. Verse 28. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. You might say, oh, wait a minute. Because last week I said that Darius and Cyrus were the same person. It was different names for the same person. Um, 
That's one theory. I'm not saying thus saith the Lord and I'm not an expert. But that's one theory. That's why in the footnote in the New Living Translation, it says this, or of Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. In other words, the, the translators of the New Living Translation said it's the same person. But there's another theory out there. And the other theory is that Darius is a guy by the name of Gobrias, who was a Persian general, and that he was appointed by King Cyrus for a couple of years, and then King Cyrus took over. That's another theory. And you know what? Beats me. I don't know. I'm not an expert. But I want to say this. I want to bring this out. Don't let that stumble you. Because I know some people get really caught up in the details. And, uh, and they go, oh, wait a minute. There's, there's you know, this not making sense. And they, that's all their focus is on this last verse. Don't let that stumble you because archaeology isn't done discovering. Belshazzar, we talked about that last week. For, for many, many years, they're like, there is no such a person in history as Belshazzar, but the Bible says it's, the Bible's got to be wrong. And then, and, and then, lo and behold, they discover the cylinder of Nabonidus, and it mentions Belshazzar, his son. So the jury's out right now, okay? So I'm saying don't, don't miss the point of the chapter. The point of the chapter is this. For you and I to sustain through turbulent changes, and I tell you, we're going through some turbulent changes in our culture right now through persecution for righteousness sake, not persecution because we're doing something stupid, we're breaking the law and going to jail, but for righteousness sake. And I believe that is coming to a, a country near you. <laughs> it's coming to our nation. We're seeing it more and more. To sustain us through the, all those changes, we need to be men and women of integrity. Man, we need to be men and women of character. There's like, there's no, there's no like private life and public life. You know, they should match. We need to be men and women of faithfulness and men and women who spend time in the presence of the Lord. That's what's going to carry you through this life, just like it did for Daniel. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer and I'll have the worship team come up.